Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Um, so today we'll be talking to Professor Matthew Brown about his book, Indirect Subjects, Nollywood's Local Address, which was published by Duke University Press earlier this year. Dr. Brown is currently a professor of African Cultural Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Brown, welcome to New Books. Thank you for having me. This is a delight. So, Professor Brown, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little more about yourself, kind of what you know experiences motivated you to get a PhD, um, and how did your academic interests develop? Um, well, thanks once again for having me. Um, you know, my trajectory towards becoming um, an African studies professor maybe starts as a toddler. Um, my uh, my family lived in Botswana for three years, and I was, you know, really very little. Uh, we came back to the United States um, when I started kindergarten. And my dad was working for the government of Botswana. He's a, he works in, like, wildlife economics. Um but my earliest remember, uh, my earliest memories are there, and I, you know, my whole life kind of nurtured this interest uh, in studying, you know, things related to the African continent. Um, as an undergraduate student in college, I studied abroad in Ghana, uh, and I knew then that I wanted to pursue a PhD. Um, and I was um, an English major at the time, and I was taking courses in African literature at the University of Ghana. And I, I, I um, you know, decided to focus on African literary studies. But when I began actually looking at the options for African literary studies, I found that there was a, a program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in those days that um, combined literary studies with language studies, you know, that really emphasized the learning of African languages um, and not just literary studies in, you know, English or French or whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, I was especially attracted to um, a particular faculty member in, in the program who had um, written about theater and popular culture in Nigeria. Um, his name is Tejumola Olania. And, um, and I fancied myself a scholar of Wole Shoyinka, the Nobel laureate uh, playwright from Nigeria. And I entered graduate school really wanting to be a Shoyinka scholar in um, Olanian's you know, first book focused a lot on Wole Shoinka. Um, but uh, he had also just published a book on Fela Kuti, the you know, renowned uh, musician and pioneer of what we call Afrobeat. And, um, and I spent several years um, working on a master's degree uh, focused on Wole Shoinka, but I was kind of being steered all that while towards popular culture. Um, and I you know, went to Nigeria to study the Yoruba language um, you know, lived with a family, you know, the idea that I would, um, you know, be speaking Yoruba at home with the family that I was living with. And 
And every night we would sit around watching, you know, Nigerian television and uh, Nigerian movies. And I would ask around all the time about theater productions. And I wanted to be a theater scholar. And people kept telling me, you know, uh, why do you care about theater so much? Um, you know, everyone who graduates from a theater arts department here wants to go into Nollywood, this Nigerian film industry that we have. That's where all of that energy is going. You know, so um, as I enter, as I finished my MA and entered the PhD program, I realized that um, all those things I was interested in were actually really being driven by the film industry in Nigeria and that that's where I should focus my energies. Interesting. Um, okay. So since I imagine that, you know, some of our listeners may not know much about Nollywood, um, while we're obviously going to get kind of into what Nollywood entails in much greater depth uh, throughout the interview, how might you kind of briefly introduce the subject to somebody who's kind of unfamiliar with the topic? Yeah, sure. You know, um, of course, there's. Uh, we could spend hours and hours just defining um, Nollywood and scholars debate even what that term might mean. But very quickly, um, you know, cinema, uh, motion pictures have been in Africa since the day they were invented and have been part of, you know, uh, people's lives. But it wasn't until the 1990s, the late 80s and early 1990s, that in Nigeria specifically, that there was a kind of confluence of technology available to people, um, you know, um, expertise and a kind of hungry audience that um, could coalesce into something that was really um, commercial, right? So there's lots of African filmmaking before the 1990s that ends up in, you know, um, film festivals and art cinema houses all around the world. And, um, you know, films from Francophone countries in Africa especially are widely renowned. Um, and and uh, that tradition of filmmaking is is something I teach and love and revere. Um, but the irony of a lot of uh, that cinema is that it didn't make it in front of African eyes that much. Um, but beginning in the 1990s in Ghana and Nigeria, um, entrepreneurs start tinkering with video technology that's just you know more widely available, also newly available. In some ways, Nigeria also has um, the oldest television network in sub-Saharan Africa and a very extensive one. So there are a lot of TVs around. There were a lot of VCRs in the early 1990s. Um, so it became possible to make movies on relatively low budgets that would go directly to African consumers, you know, that storytellers could um, easily put their stories right in front of people's eyes. Um, and uh, it took a few years, but uh, caught on pretty quickly. In 1992, with the release of a film called Living in Bondage, people really saw that this was a viable business model. And um, it didn't take long for all kinds of um, entrepreneurs and experts from the television um, authority and so on to kind of flood into this new market and begin to making uh, what we call video films, you know, uh, feature length films on video format to be sold directly to consumers in the marketplace. Um, and it exploded, you know, and within 10 years, um, it was big enough that the New York Times, you know, took an interest. And there was a reporter in 2002 who, uh, in an article, said something like, you know, look out Hollywood, look out Bollywood, here comes Nollywood. And that was the first time anyone had used that term. Um, but it stuck really quickly in Nigeria um, because the people making those films and the audiences consuming them kind of agreed that what was happening in Nigeria was another example of 
a big, global, glamorous, glitzy, exciting commercial film industry um, like they have in India and like they have in the United States. Um, so people latched on to this uh, name Nollywood, and it's stuck ever since. Um, again, you know, we scholars debate a little bit whether or not Nollywood refers to all of the filmmaking taking place in Nigeria or whether it refers to, as I focus on in my book, mostly English language films coming out of southern Nigeria, precisely because there are, there are basically other industries in the country. There's a you know, house of film industry in the north of Nigeria. There's a Yoruba language film industry in the southwest. Um, but whether or not Nollywood re uh, refers to the entire country or whether or not Nollywood refers to this small segment of the industry, um, it, it quickly has become you know, the audiovisual industry of the African continent, especially in places where sp people speak English. Um, and just in the like last 10 years, this relatively low budget way of making films has attracted enough attention that um, large amounts of capital investment have flowed into the industry. And we're now seeing the production of new kinds of films with new kinds of funding sources, um, you know, so that the the old way of making films that started in the 90s, started in the 1990s still exists. But now we have something we call new Nollywood sort of on top of that, that is producing content that's now showing up on Netflix and, you know, Amazon Prime and, you know, all, all around the world. Um, and in fact, Netflix is, is buying the rights to a lot of content. So that's one place that listeners could go to see, um, you know, all kinds of brand new Nollywood films, as well as some of the classics that they have the, the rights to stream on Netflix. Um, and you know it's very clear now that Nigeria and Nollywood um, it really sort of you know and some people don't like this you know whether we like it or not sort of represent African audiovisual media uh, to the rest of the world. Yeah, to the extent I actually know of one uh, Kenyan actress I happened to just like briefly meet um, when I was in Lagos who was actually you know, sort of transitioning her career into to Nollywood. Um, one thing I want to kind of make sure our, our listeners are aware, because it's kind of an interesting, you know, perhaps comparison to the U.S., is the fact that also a lot of the directors of Nollywood are women. And this gets kind of brought up mm -hmm. um, in your book, which is perhaps something you wouldn't necessarily, you know, expect. Um, anyway, great. So now that we've sort of, you know, situa we're situated a bit, um, sort of what were your research methods for um, the project and kind of feel free to also maybe reflect on kind of what worked well and what was sort of maybe difficult. Like I know you had some challenges in terms of getting some materials, especially related to the state uh, television history. Right. Um, I'm trained, as I said, in literary studies. Um, so my objective all along was to basically, you know, read films, as we say, you know, um, treat films as texts that I could closely interrogate and analyze. Um, but, you know, two things, I had to establish an archive of films that I could actually work with. Um, and I also felt that my attempts to, you know, quote unquote, read these things would be pretty poor without a lot of experience, you know, with the industry, with the audience, etc. So, um, so I did spend, you know, a lot of time doing field work in Nigeria, um, living off and on for, you know, almost two years, you know, one stint for almost a year, um, you know, with plans to go back all the time as I keep doing research there. But, um, 
But in some ways, that fieldwork experience doesn't necessarily show up in the book. You know, so I did things like interview professionals and um, spend time on the set of films as they were being made to see how it happens and attend conferences and, you know, just just going into the marketplace, into the streets and seeing what people were buying and talking to the people who were selling films and seeing what was popular, etc. Um, like I said, that doesn't necessarily show up in the pages of the book where I'm kind of closely analyzing films and trying to deal with how these films do and don't relate to, you know, Nigerian history. Um, but certainly, I think my readings of the films are richer from having done all that fieldwork. The other thing that happened is that um, I was very interested in doing archival research to kind of, you know, buttress my readings of things and to better understand the history of the industry. Um, and I, you know, spent a lot of time at the uh, National Archives in Ibadan. Um, and, you know, I would request files that were listed in the catalog and uh, repeatedly, um, you know, the folks working there would come back to me and say, we can't find that file or it doesn't seem to exist or, you know, those documents aren't available. Um, and in some cases, it, that seemed definitely to be the case. In some cases, I wasn't entirely sure whether or not I should, um, you know, try to uh, pass a little more money to that person to see if maybe they could look again and look a little harder. But the point is, yes. is that, right? <laughs> um, point is, is that a lot of the things I thought I would have access to, I didn't find. But what did seem to be easily available and just kept coming to me over and over were um, files from the colonial period. And of course, successive military governments in Nigeria and so on have meant that certain government records weren't kept well. Um, whereas, you know, records from that colonial period have just, you know, sat where they have sat for decades. So um, I kept getting, you know, reams and reams of material on the colonial period and especially cinema being produced and circulated at that time and and started thinking really about the history of of screen media writ large in Nigeria you know so we're sort of like from the beginning of the invention of film up through Nollywood and um, and trying to think about you know whether or not there are any linkages there and what it would mean to kind of tie this history together um, and there were some models out there there were other scholars who had done similar things so I was kind of you know um, I felt confident that there was something to pursue there for me, the, the link between the two became state television. You know, I, it's, it was something I was aware of, but I came, became then hyper aware of the fact that um, Nigeria's television industry uh, or television network, which is basically launched before the end of the colonial period, you know, late in the colonial period, um, you know, was modeled on colonial cinema, you know, and, and sort of positioned itself very much like colonial cinema did with relationship to its audience. And then Nollywood seems to have been born out of state television in, in many ways. And scholars had said that for years, but, you know, um, but it was a difficult thing to pursue because, well, okay, how does state television and Nollywood compare? You need to find examples. And again, governments weren't keeping records very well and so on. So it, it took me, you know, years. In fact, there are things that I write about in the book that I just, I didn't write about in my PhD dissertation because I didn't have them at the time and later got them. But, um, you know, it took me a, a long time to kind of assemble an archive that included some of the stuff from the colonial period, things from state television from the 60s up through the 1990s, and then combine that with, you know, the much more easily available Nollywood content to create something that I could, you know, actually work with to trace this history. Yeah, I was curious, I mean, how did you get 
kind of recordings of some of these state TV shows? Like, what is there a kind of like, do some Nigerians kind of have their own archives of, you know, tapes that they've recorded from the TV and then kept? Or like, yeah, I was curious how you actually got your yeah, hands you on know, them. Um, uh, that's, that is definitely the case. So I've met a, f- a few folks who's, who, you know, actually have things um, and, and have used some of those materials in some cases, the actual producers. So it depended on, you know, if they're actually still, um, with us, you know, but when it came to like certain soap operas from the late eighties and early nineties, there's a, um, a particular producer, um, that features a lot in the book. Her name is Amaka Igwe. And, um, and she has, you know, since passed away, unfortunately, um, but she and her husband ran this production company and and kept all of their old stuff. So there was eventually it was possible to get tapes of their television programs that they had made before they went into making content um, for Nollywood. Um, and then in some cases, I I went to, you know, the Nigerian television offices in Ibadan. I went to the offices in Lagos. I went to the offices in Abuja um, and would just meet dead ends, dead ends all the time not be able to find anything and then later come to find out that uh, some researcher who had been to Nigeria in the 80s and who had taped some things had you know stored them away in some library uh, in the global north you know um, and then through you know using library connections and so on we're able to get you know a few things that way so it it was a combination of like looking in lots of different places and then sort of piecing things together to get access to those. And there's still so much out there that, you know, I've never seen that. I don't even know if it actually exists, you know, that there are programs that we have read about and um, discussed in the world of Nollywood studies, but that I don't know if any recordings even exist. Interesting. Um, all right. So let's get into the the book a bit more. So, you know, your key concept in the book is what you call peri-liberalism. Uh, I start here not only since this is sort of the conceptual thread that ties all of the chapters together, but also because I think this will be a useful concept for a kind of broad range of scholars outside of Nollywood studies. Like, I think there's a lot people can get from your book, even if they don't care about Nigeria necessarily specifically. So, you know, particularly scholars working on global capitalism and decolonization. Um, so what is peri-liberalism and how is this concept relevant to Nigerian media history? Yeah, you know, it was something I felt like I had to coin to try and describe a condition that, you know, seemed apparent to me in working with this material, but that I didn't think was fully captured by terms that are already available to us, like liberalism itself, or even neoliberalism. Um, You know, um, very briefly, peri-liberalism describes a condition of, you know, being marginal to the global capitalist economy, Um, even though those who are supposedly marginal are actually central to and um, um, and constitutive of the global capitalist economy. Um, So the idea is that in the case of a place like Nigeria, um, through, uh, we don't necessarily need to trace this history here, but through kind of the evolution of liberalism um, over, you know, over centuries, um, uh, more and more people found themselves sort of being held at arm's length 
from the processes of global capitalism, from the benefits of global capitalism, even though the the places that they live are actually central to the operations of global capitalism. And what does it feel like to have sort of lived in this interesting situation, um, you know, again, for centuries, being both absolutely integral to the way that the world economy works, um, but not able to enjoy any of its benefits or even feel like um, they're participating. Um, so, you know, shortly, that's what paraliberalism is. And, and one could say, oh, well, you know, that's that is how liberalism works. That's part of the argument I'm making in the book. Um, or one could say that's really that is how neoliberalism works. Why would we need um, another term? You know, but again, the idea was to try and capture the the experiences of those folks living in that condition, which neoliberalism doesn't necessarily always explain well. And in fact, there are very different experiences of neoliberalism depending on where you're located. And we often come back to, um, I think, sometimes overgeneralizing the kinds of experiences that those of us, you know, subjected to neoliberalism in the global north have and um, and not necessarily realizing how, how very different the experiences of um, people in places like Nigeria are. Um, so in order to kind of refocus things, say I'm basically studying the same phenomenon, but refocus things, um, you know, and really think about what it feels like to be in this particular um, place in relation to the global economy is, is why I needed the term. Um, and, you know, finally, I hope the term is indeed useful, um, but one of the ways that it's especially relevant to the study of, of film and media is because, as I try to, you know, explain in the book, um, you know, these these media that people are consuming, you know, which are, cons you know, which are part of all large sign systems and, and scholars looking at all different kinds of um, aspects of these large sign systems could, could work their way into this. But... Um, but that these media really just position themselves between audiences and between the global economy. And I think that's another reason why it's especially useful to have a kind of peri, you know, like peri-urban, you know, those places that are just on the fringes, but without which there would be no urban space or parallel to, you know, um, that uh, screen media kind of situate themselves right between these two things and, um, and consistently address their audiences, which is why the the book subtitle is Nollywood's Local Address. It's the way that um, they address their audiences in a, a kind of peri-liberal way. Does this make sense? Yeah, no, and I think too, what will become you know clear soon is that you know the solutions that say neoliberalism offers are very different than the solutions that peri-liberalism offers, which we'll, I think, have a chance to get into shortly. Thank you. That's a great way of putting it. Um, so your first, um, let's kind of then get net, move in now into kind of the different forms of, of media as well as sort of the modes of address that get covered in the book. So you kind of, you start out in your first chapter with, I found a really interesting critique of sort of how scholars often frame indirect rule as one of pure economy. Like I think often when we're teaching indirect rule, um, that's kind of a, a, a key thing that we hit on. Um, but rather, you point out that we need to also kind of consider how indirect rule was greatly informed by the ideology of liberalism. So maybe can you kind of expand on how those two are connected? Sure. 
you know, in this case, I'm I'm leaning heavily on the work of other scholars who, you know, and there's a you know relatively recent movement in political philosophy to try and and rethink the idea that liberalism um, arises precisely at the same time as colonialism when they seem like very you know um, you know different projects, um, but in fact, of course, related. Um, you know, so looking at the work of um, Karuna Mantena and Mahmoud Mamdani, you know, um, helped me realize that, uh, you know, indirect rule was in, in many ways forged out of a crisis of liberalism uh, that in the early 20th century, you know, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, it was very unclear, especially to British liberals, um, whether or not the liberal colonial project was viable, you know, whether or not it was possible to to turn colonial subjects into uh, members of the liberal world order. Um, and, and it was things like revolts in Jamaica and India and so on that pointed out that, you know, people didn't feel like they were being integrated into some kind of converging global economic system. Um, and, you know, uh, conservative politics, you know, makes... Um, a big resurgence in, in the UK and, um, you know, sort of liberal policymakers are trying to figure out, you know, how can we treat our colonial subjects in a way that um, will advance our understanding of liberalism, um, but also, you know, without expending too many resources, um, you know, without provoking them to uh, revolt and so on. An indirect rule, which which satisfies the resource part in the sense of, oh, we don't need that many boots on the ground because we'll ask, um, you know, the, the chiefs and the kings, or we'll invent chiefs and kings if necessary to help us administer certain parts of our colonies. Um, you know, it also gave these policymakers, you know, the idea that, um, uh, people will be less likely to revolt uh, and will feel more comfortable, perhaps, under colonial rule um, if they can supposedly rule themselves, right? If they can sort of, in, if they can govern themselves and then indirectly, right, um, the colonial system will be governing them, you know, but, but without um, direct interventions in their lives. Um, and I don't think that Africans, you know, felt especially, you know, um, uh, I don't think that they they felt served necessarily by this, you know, innovation. Uh, but liberal policy makers, you know, back in the metropole, definitely felt like what they had done was, you know, revered uh, local culture, you know, and local institutions, um, and that made them feel very proud as liberals. You know, it kind of invented a new way of thinking about liberalism, which is, oh, we shouldn't interfere too much. We shouldn't. Um, try to reform local institutions, we should leave them be. And then in fact, that's a very good way to be a liberal in the world. Um, and, and in this way, you know, we, we won't use illiberal authoritarian tactics to, to run our colonies, you know, we'll, we'll instead rely on reverence um, for people's cultures and institutions and so on. But essentially what that meant was that um, many institutions and many people were sort of left out of all kinds of development, left out of all kinds of investment, you know, were sort of cut off from the liberal, uh, you know, world economy in many ways. Uh, sure. Um, 
So in your chapter on, you know, colonial depictions of Nigeria via film, um, you note the kind of a general trend is that sort of African and European viewers, quote, were invited to celebrate imposed isolation from global trade as a triumph of local self-sufficiency. Promoting real African life became a smokescreen for removing Africans from the discussion about how they would participate in the exploitative process of global capitalism. So, you know, in the book, you provide, you know, a number of kind of examples of this. Can you perhaps now kind of maybe share one or two and also just kind of explain the political stakes of this? I mean, I think they're clear, but feel free to kind of reaffirm (laughs) Yeah, sure. You know, in fact, the thing I was about to say returned to me. Um, you know, I wanted to quote uh, one of these scholars, Caruno Montana, that said that, you know, this innovation was really what she called an alibi of empire. It was a way of saying, you know, um, yes, we were there, but we actually weren't there, you know. Um, uh, and, and that's how indirect rule end, ended up, you know, functioning um, for liberal policymakers. Um, so, an, you know, an example of this that I trace in the book is... Um, you know, actually the very long life of some footage that was filmed um, in Nigeria in the early 1920s that then became part of uh, the 1924 Empire Exhibition in, um, you know, outside of London in Wembley. And um, and then, you know, this footage that was, you know, kind of edited and shown and then edited again, you know, eventually ends up um, as part of um, a kind of colonial cinema film called Black Cotton. Um, and the way that certain liberals were thinking about Black Cotton at the time became something that I could trace because they had reviewed the film, you know, in trade journals and so on. So looking at the ways that um, that people reacted to the films um, made it clear to me that while... On one hand, there is a scholarship on cotton growing in Nigeria, in fact, in different parts of Africa, and the different ways that it worked and the the kinds of roles that uh, the British played in either fostering or not fostering, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, industrial innovations in in the growth and exportation of cotton. Um, The film itself, um, you know, makes it seem as if the reason that some Nigerians choose not to participate, or the reason that some Nigerians didn't participate in in um, the production and circulation of cotton for the global market is because they revered their own traditions, and, you know, and they liked doing things their own ways, when in fact the scholarship suggests that, um, you know, had the British simply paid more for the products that they were seeking to export, they probably could have incorporated um, you know, some local producers into this sort of global circulation of, of cotton and cotton capital, um, right? So that the film does this job of suggesting to its audience, and the film was shown not just in the UK, it eventually was shown all over Africa and even to um, Nigerians. It suggests that um, the reason that Nigerians don't participate in the global economy is because they don't want to, because they like their own ways of doing things when in fact, maybe Nigeria would have been better integrated into the global economy if, you know, it wasn't for indirect rule, if it wasn't for a certain uh, British sensibility about what can and can't be paid to Nigerians and how much they should or shouldn't participate. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and as you note in the book, too, that kind of the question of what Nigerians uh, can or should be paid is also connected to, say, what Ugandan cotton right. growers can and should be paid. So it's, you know, there's a lot of factors clearly outside of mm-hmm. any kind of one Nigerian cotton grower's control. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, in the book that the, um, the film I'm talking about was shown in Uganda, you know, and um, the reactions of viewers, uh, you know, were recorded. There were students at a school, you know, who were shown this film and and they wrote down, wow, you know, the Nigerian cotton industry seems to work different from the one that we have here. Well, um, you know, the reason that it works differently is not, again, simply because of what the film is trying to project that that, um, Nigerian cotton growers, you know, don't want to participate in the global economy. It's because very specific colonial policies implemented in Uganda, you know, made it work that way. Um, so your next chapter then kind of looks at the emergence of uh, Nigerian state TV. Um, so briefly to kind of help ground listeners, sort of what is the history of kind of how TV uh, developed in Nigeria? It's actually a really fascinating story, and I don't even detail it that well in the book because it's been covered by other scholars, so it's sort of footnoted. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, in the late 1950s, before Nigeria becomes an independent nation state, um, which happens in 1960. Um, you know, this is the post-World War II period and all over the continent, there are processes that are playing out that are that are clear to most people are leading towards some version of sovereignty, you know? And so there are, um, you know, there are local government parliaments made up of, you know, Nigerian politicians and so on. Um, and in the case of the Western region of Nigeria, which doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, um, you know, that parliament made up of many, uh, you know, local Nigerian politicians um, got into a very heated debate uh, with the colonial officers about um, a new constitution that was, um, you know, sort of working its way through the system. Um, and the, you know, colonial governor, governor went on radio, um, you know, and there was a there was a large colonial radio service at the time and and excoriated, you know, these local Nigerian politicians um, for being obstructionists and so on. And um, the leader of um, of a particular party there, uh, Obafemi Awolowo, you know, he he wanted to respond. He went to the radio station. He said, I should have, you know, equal airtime to respond. And they denied him that uh, opportunity. So he and his party began nurturing this idea of we, we should have our own mouthpiece. We should have our own way to speak to our public because the colonial government isn't going to allow us. Um, and instead of their own radio station or something like that, they decided to go with television, you know, partly because of prestige, partly because of new technology. You know, um, in some ways, it's looked at as a, you know, a very risky venture that they undertook. Um, but one year before independence came to Nigeria, they already had one television station set up uh, in Ibadan, um, in southern Nigeria, and broadcasting. And they even bought televisions and distributed them in some cases, so that there would be, you know, places where people could receive their signal. Um, and um, and so some, you know, very early filmmaking, motion picture making, you know, for television, was uh, being undertaken by, you know, this uh, local Nigerian government. You know, even before the country was independent. Uh, as soon as independence came, um, other regions of the country, you know, sort of jumped on, you know, and said, oh, well, the Western region has a television station that 
we need one in the northern region, we need one in the eastern region. Um, and then there was a federal government. They said, oh, well, we need to have television too. And very quickly, over the course of just a couple of decades, Nigeria's television network just grew and grew and grew. The regions were subdivided into states, and then each state had to have its own broadcasting facility to the point that there are 36 states um, and the national uh, capital territory in, um, in Nigeria. And each one has its own broadcasting facility and its own station. Um, and then, the, of course, the federal station making it the, the biggest, you know, the most extensive and, of course, the oldest because they started before the end of colonial rule um, television network on the African continent. All right. So you, you note in this chapter that similar to colonial films, which, you know, sought to have an educational purpose, you know, the same is true with early state TV shows. You know, as you say, at times, it seems to have been designed to create an opportunity for the public to identify with and therefore concede to, but also prop up, the gatekeeper developmentalist state. Um, so could you perhaps like expand on this with maybe one or two examples? Yeah, you know, the, the post-colonial state finds itself in a very you know, tricky position at, at independence, right? It has a lot of work to do. Um, and not necessarily all the resources to do it, um, you know, and, and seems, and it, you know, um, there, there are scholars who have, you know, looked at this history and said, you know, there are many paths that could have been taken, um, and it's maybe too bad that certain ones weren't pursued. But the path that was pursued in, in most countries, and certainly in Nigeria, was that the, the government would play this very, very similar to the colonial government developmentalist role in the nation would have to modernize its population would have to do so in certain ways. Um, so the reason that state television is so attractive, you know, to the government at independence is that it's a great medium for, for modernizing people. At least they thought, you know, I mean, you, you don't need literacy rates are expanding at an exponential rate, but you don't need literacy, um, to talk to people through motion pictures. Um, so, so the state invests very heavily. Um, and, you know, by way of example, one of the pioneers of uh, state television in Nigeria, um, a man named Shegun Olushola, uh, who, you know, who was a statesman, you know, who, who really you know, ended up ambassador to Ethiopia uh, later in his career, uh, created programs. He ran, you know, the bureaucracy at different television stations. He was very much an academic. He, you know, um, he received a, a PhD from an American institution, but he, as part of it, he did, um, he did some research on audiences in Nigeria and ways of using this medium, you know, to influence minds and so on. And he gave uh, speeches and, and wrote essays. So I look at a lot of the stuff that uh, Olushola produced over the years, including a television program he created called The Village Headmaster, which first aired in 1964 and um, didn't go off the air until uh, the 1990s. And in fact, it's coming back. You know, there's a new Village Headmaster that's coming back to Nigerian television screens um, just next year. So... Um, so the village headmaster is this really enduring story that um, has, you know, had different iterations and so on, um, but has basically been a part of the, you know, the audiovisual culture in Nigeria for a long time. And, and you know, the way that that show is structured, um, it's, of course, about a village headmaster. It's about a, like, you know, a local school teacher who runs the, you know, who runs this village school. Um, 
and who is therefore kind of like the main representative of the state in this small community. And he's constantly, you know, different. There have been different headmasters over the years, you know, different actual characters, you know, different names, of course, played by different actors. But over and over again, the headmasters is like the state, always trying to bring modernity to the people of this community in certain specific ways. And the community resists him sometimes, you know, um, goes along with him at other times. You know, sometimes he has to work really hard to convince them that what he's doing is in their best interest. And the way that the program is structured, it, it sort of invites spectators to identify with him as a figure to kind of think through the problems of getting um, a kind of unmodern community to become modern from his point of view, you know, which I argue is is essentially that the way that state television was working was trying to get people to identify with and empathize with and concede to what the state was trying to do. Okay, and then the next chapter kind of turns to what you call the feminine melodramatic mode. And kind of before we get to that, you provide a really interesting history of the origin of soap operas and melodrama. And you know, I'll admit, I did not realize that kind of literal bars of soap was uh, connected to the development of this genre, although certainly it makes sense given, given the title. Um, so can you maybe just describe this briefly a bit for listeners, because I imagine many people will find it interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I felt it necessary to even look at American history very briefly, where radio serials um, that were, you know, produced supposedly for women audiences, um, you know, in the early 20th century in the United States were sponsored by um, you know, different, uh, you know, commodity, you know, companies making different kinds of consumer goods that, you know, supposedly women would want to buy, including soap, but not exclusively. Um, and, you know, yeah, that that name soap opera sort of comes from the, that early radio culture in the United States and sticks. The reason it's relevant in Nigeria, not simply because that's what they call these soap operas in Nigeria, the ones that aired on television, um, but because, you know, Soap companies are a huge part of, of the funding, you know, of those and the kinds of advertising that appears, you know, the sponsorship of those programs. Um, and soap also has this, you know, it's very sordid history um, all across Africa and certainly in Nigeria, this history of, of an association. So first of all, soap is made from things like palm oil that you, you know, extract from a place like Nigeria. And then it's, you know, it's made into a commodity in, in a place like Victorian England and then sold back to Africans precisely with all this advertising about being clean and, you know, making yourself, again, sort of modern and hygienic, you know, in a certain way that's amenable um, to a colonial understanding of the world and so on. So, um, so those very same companies, you know, Lever Brothers, which, you know, comes out of um, the very earliest joint stock companies that were operating in Africa, you know, and is still with us today, you know, is still sponsoring this stuff so that the, the soap opera is an important genre, you know, um, not just because of the, the domestic themes it explores and so on, but this, um, you know, this relationship to the, the violence of colonialism and the extraction and the global economy and so on. It's really it's like embedded in the name. All right. So your key argument here, it seems, is that 
the sort of the mode both sort of correlates femininity or successful femininity with male breadwinning, while also suggesting that the solution for women whose men who do not meet this ideal, which is the sort of majority of the country, is to endure suffering. And that this endurance of hardship is, in a sense, kind of moral and good. Um, so kind of how did you come to that argument? And maybe what's one or two example of that? Yeah, um, I mean, partly uh, my understanding of the scenes is informed by uh, a very, you know, literary studies approach to the concept of melodrama itself, you know, so that this this way of telling stories where um, where events are kind of inflated and emotions are kind of inflated into their, you know, their, their most evil and their most good and sort of pitted against one another. Um, you know, there's a sense that that genre of storytelling or that mode of storytelling, you know, arises with modernity, you know, with the rise of capitalism, precisely to try and help audiences deal with the kinds of suffering that they're enduring, you know, so whether it's, you know, workers in in factories in England, you know, or or um, whether it's you know Nigerians living in a in an underperforming economy. Um, when I look very you know closely at the kinds of you know melodrama the soap operas produced on state television in the in the late '80s and early '90s, I find that again they're in the same way that state television has has invited. Uh, spectators to identify with the developmentalist state. There are there are these these other kinds of shows, these um, soap operas, who are inviting um, spectators to identify with women who are dealing with just as you said a certain particular kind of a problem, which is they're trying to have a kind of a family, a family that is really um, you know ideologically underwritten, you know, a nuclear family where w- one man and one woman. Are monogamous, um, you know, and they live kind of apart from extended family kin. This very, you know, liberal modern ideal of a of a family, which is not necessarily what m- most people's lives look like in southern Nigeria. But on TV, it's presented as if it is the the perfect ideal. But the the problem in example after example, such as a television soap opera called Checkmate, which was you know supposedly Nigeria's most popular uh, soap opera from this sort of golden era of television. Um, in the early 90s, you know, invites spectators to identify with this one character, Ada. And she has, you know, a, a man who's almost perfect in every way. He's he's a really nice guy. He's really helpful. He cooks around the house. You know, he's not some kind of like gruff patriarch. He's like the ideal husband for this this particular ideological idea of the family, this, this companionate marriage and family that they're trying to form. The only problem with her husband, Nduka, is that he's not the breadwinner in their home, you know? He doesn't make that much money, doesn't make more than she does, you know? And he could, because he's a trained engineer, but he's working as a school teacher. And, you know, she comes from a fairly wealthy family and her parents want to help them buy a car and so on. And he says, no, 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 you can't let them do that. I'm the one who should be providing for her, um, for us. So so Ada's problem, it seems to be over and over throughout the program. And then you find again that it, it crops up in so many Nollywood movies. Um, that are released, you know, later in the '90s, and then as the industry um, progresses, is that um, her problems would be solved. These programs seem to say, or these films, if if the husband really was a breadwinner, you know. And I I really tried to grapple with that because again, 
having spent a lot of time in southern Nigeria and knowing that this isn't precisely how people think about their families, why would this fantasy appear over and over on screens? You know, what was behind that? Um, and it occurred to me that the fantasy isn't so much about having a patriarch. I don't think that's what women exactly want. It seems to be about living in an economy that could produce a breadwinner. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we did live in a liberal, you know, economic system that paid good wages and, you know, our men could make enough money and could support us. And then it's not so much that we want to be under the authority of a man, but, but then, but man, then we would live in a, in a real modern place. Right. Um, so that seems to be what kind of work that the, the fantasy seems to be doing in those kinds of uh, television programs and then subsequently Nollywood films. Great. And, you know, your next chapter then sort of looks at the kind of parallel, I mean, you, what you sort of term the, the masculine melodramatic mode, um, which, you know, in a sense, like addresses and critiques the feminine melodramatic mode. Um, and, you know, and the men in this mode are, you know, sort of, as you put it, not bread winners, but bread losers, um, you know, i.e., they always sort of involve some man who, for a variety of reasons, is unable to provide for his wife as he would like to. And in fact, she often is able to provide more, which gets kind of again and again symbolized by uh, her literally handing him a big stack uh, of money. Uh, and so this sort of hurts his own kind of self-perception of his masculinity. Uh, and then kind of he then attempts to sort of win bread through illicit means of money magic, which is a kind of, you know, both a theme in Nollywood, but also a sort of an older theme um, in sort of Nigerian popular culture, often with a touch of Satanism, you know, in the Nollywood version, uh, which then kind of leads to his downfall, uh, as well as the murder of his wife that he always somehow has a, a hand in doing. Um, and, you know, you provide several examples of this plot line. Mm -hmm. So the moral seems to be, as you put it, that kind of in this imagined landscape, it would be much safer, it seems, to give up the ideal of breadwinning altogether. Um, so, okay, could you kind of perhaps maybe break that down a bit more for us and kind of sort of explain how this connects to periliberalism? Right. Yeah, right. If the way that the global economy positions Nigeria today, um, that it's, you know, which has um, become true even in, you know, the center of the global economy in place of the United States, that once upon a time where um, somebody could be the breadwinner of a nuclear family, that's no longer possible. It's basically, you know, rarely if ever been possible in Nigeria and certainly not today. So, so it would make much more sense for, um, for people to tell themselves stories about pooling resources and working with extended family and so on to sort of, you know, navigate the economy that actually exists. But again, that's not what we see in screen media. We see fantasies of something else. You know, we see the stories don't um, necessarily talk about uh, actual strategies for navigating the economy as it is, but fantasies for how life could be different if things were different. And so, um, the idea here is that, you know, this is the, the supposed first Nollywood movie, Living in Bondage, um, sort of set this storyline in motion and Living in Bondage drew talent and um, even storytelling motifs directly from Checkmate, the soap opera I was just talking about. Um, 
And I, I definitely see living in bondage as sort of responding to. So um, whereas this feminine melodramatic mode invites spectators to identify with a woman who would like to have a breadwinner, this masculine melodramatic mode invites specters to identify with a man who's trying to become a breadwinner. But again, in an economic situation that can't actually provide uh, breadwinner wages. So, um, so living in bondage is often discussed by scholars of Nollywood, not only as this important first film, but as an example of something we call, you know, occult, occult economies, right? And, and there's an anthropological literature that we draw from um, that tries to deal with the fact that, you know, in the 1990s in Nigeria, after the collapse of their oil boom, you know, there are wealthy people walking around all over the place, but it, it's not exactly clear where the wealth comes from. You know, they, they don't seem to be working. They don't seem to, you know, it's, it's, it's because it derives from corruption and from oil and so on. Um, so living in bondage seems to kind of depict this situation where what happens to a particular man is that he wants to be uh, wealthy enough to provide for his wife, but he doesn't know how to do that. But he gets attracted into this money magic cult. And then through these satanic practices, including sacrificing a woman and, and ends up sacrificing his own wife to this cult, then he'll become wealthy enough to be a breadwinner. Ironically, the person for whom he would win that bread is now destroyed, you know, by his attempt to, you know, to become a breadwinner. Um, so yes, living in bondage is, a, is about this kind of occult economy, I'm sure. But it also really seems to be about a crisis of of masculinity, a crisis of, of gender, of men trying to um, deal with this idea that if women desire breadwinners, or if there's this fantasy out there that that being a male breadwinner would mean that we were modern, but it's actually impossible to achieve, you know, then perhaps there's something dark and evil, perhaps something almost satanic at the heart of this breadwinner ideology, which in some ways could actually be um, read as an important critique of that particular, you know, ideology. Um, unfortunately, the men in these stories, they they do find a resolution at the end of the films, which is true with most Nollywood films. There's often a, a nice revolution that or a, um, resolution that makes audiences uh, feel better. And and the places that those men find their resolution is in you know the church, the Pentecostal church, or some kind of state institution using the police to help them solve their problems, or whatever. Um, which is ironic precisely because it's the church that has spread this idea of the male breadwinner. Um, it's the government that has, you know, um, subtended this idea of the male breadwinner and so on. So instead of um, ending up as a full-throated kind of critique of this ideology, you know, it's, it seems to suggest that, um, that men should perhaps just wait and be patient um, just the way that women should be patient, you know, and someday their breadwinner will come. The men, too, should just be patient and someday maybe breadwinner wages will be possible. And in that sense, the movies seem to be inviting their audiences to, you know, temper their own desires and be patient and live these paraliberal lives that they've been given um, without necessarily demanding access to the economy that they should have access to. Because once again, it was built by Nigerian resources, you know, it was built by African resources. I'm wondering, and, you know, maybe there's not a clear answer to this, but why do you think it is that, you know, for, for the male melodrama, it ends up often, right, having these connections to the occult, whereas for women, that's never kind of the solution they seek. 
Um, it's a good question. You know, I'm the, I, I can't say, so I, you know, I didn't necessarily write about this in the book, so it's not yeah. something I have a formulated answer to, but what occurs to me is that, you know, in the example I gave this soap opera called Checkmate, um, Adad does, you know, use certain, you know, there, there's a, there is a, some kind of, you know, small thread of the occult running through there, or, or at least of the metaphysical. So, um, where it's not in an attempt to make money or, um, you know, make her husband into something particular, you know, uh, early on the couple struggles to conceive, you know, and, and, it, you know, it, it's a kind of, um, truism in Nigerian popular culture that, you know, like no marriage is really, um, you know, uh, it's not real until there's, you know, children who are born, you know, so this is a real crisis for the couple, you know, and, and they eventually do, um, you know, Ada eventually does become pregnant, but, you know, she resorts to um, Aladura prophets on Bar Beach in Lagos, you know, she, you know, she has friends that want to take her, you know, perhaps to see, um, you know, a local diviner, um, you know, and she has these kinds of premonitions. Um, she sees a black cat, you know, several different times. So there are these, there are these really interesting moments, even in that, you know, program that suggests that there is something evil, you know, about this desire that she has or something, you know, problematic about this desire that she has. Um, but, but it is true that, um, you know, instead of being lured into, um, you know, a, a cult of some kind, you know, that, that she endures, you know, um, I, you know, I think that there's some things uh, specifically masculine about the occult, uh, in Nigerian popular culture, even though, again, we often associate witchcraft with, mm -hmm. you know, with, with, uh, femininity, you know, and so on. Um, there, there is something that seems to suggest that, that masculinity itself, you know, is, is really under threat, you know, and, and that, that, that threat is really very dark, you know, um, and that that's why men end up in that space trying to negotiate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And perhaps, I mean, now I'm just thinking of some other examples I'm familiar with in different media, but mm. right. Perhaps women are more likely to get drawn into the occult through concerns of fertility yeah. versus men who are more likely to get caught up with concerns over breadwinning. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what those examples suggest. Um, all right. So now you kind of turn uh, to what you call, refer to as sort of the Gothic mode of address, which kind of concerns what scholars often refer to as Nollywood epics. So mm -hmm. maybe kind of first, again, for listeners who are maybe not familiar, kind of what is a Nollywood epic? What are some of its sort of typical features? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, about seven years into the development of this video film industry. Um, well, you know, actually it didn't take that long. Um, there were, uh, there were attempts here and there to, um, you know, create a film, um, using this, you know, this new video film industry that was cropping up, um, to depict the pre-colonial past, you know, and, um, several of the most early attempts really looked to historical moments, you know, either, either, uh, historical in the sense of well-known in the oral tradition, such as the legend of a, of a Yoruba king turned god called Shango, or, um, you know, actual, uh, historical events, you know, recorded, uh, you know, through Western means, you know, such as colonial encounters in the Southeast. 
Uh, but they're, you know, just scattered attempts that were really difficult to make, you know, because the idea is you have to go into a particular setting and, and costume your actors in particular ways in order to convince the audience that this is the time period, you know, before modernity. Um, but in, in 1999, a film named uh, Igodo, uh, Land of the Living Dead, is released. Um, and it, it does the same thing. It's um, actually starts in contemporary times, but then sort of through flashback, you know, we go back to, um, you know, 100 years in the past, you know, and um, and there are, you know, there are no cars, there are no T-shirts, there are no, you know, colonial officers, there are none of those things. This is a kind of an isolated, you know, um, village uh, in the middle of the rainforest. Um, but then this, you know, this terrain is carved out, this space to explore certain kinds of stories that don't have to deal precisely with modernity as we know it. Um, uh, Igodo, you know, had several imitators and sort of launched this whole genre that people on the ground call epics. And so scholars too, you know, use that nomenclature. Um, and Igodo didn't depict an historical event um, or even a known legend. It sort of made up its own legendary story, um, cobbling together all different kinds of resources from oral traditions and so on, but sort of, you know, invented a, an exciting, you know, landscape where um, the filmmakers could talk about what it means to be a kind of isolated, but also therefore sovereign, you know, and self-contained society dealing with its own problems, you know, kind of in the way that um, writers like Chinua Achebe used the pre-colonial period or the encounter with colonialism to kind of discuss the ways that Nigerian societies have of dealing with their own issues in their own ways and not necessarily needing recourse to modernity. But it, it launched this, you know, fantastic genre of films that, you know, are really fun. And, and um, there are so many different kinds of epics that, you know, I couldn't possibly exhaust all the different ways that they work. You know, but what's interesting about them is that some things have to be invented, they have to be imagined, you know, and in many cases, the actors are speaking English and so on. So it's not exactly saying to the audience, oh, we're going back to pre-colonial times. It's more carving out a kind of imaginary space, again, a kind of fantasy space where certain kinds of issues can be dealt with in certain kinds of ways. Well, yeah, and as you kind of, you know, one of the things that you argue in in the chapter is, for example, in Igodu, that sort of the goal of the characters there is not to kind of change, as you put it, political power, not to question the legitimacy of the authority that puts their lives at risk, quite literally, mm. um, but rather it's to kind of find a me mechanism that will allow the community to cope, to endure, to mm -hmm. kind of retain its most you know basic uh, set of rights. Um, including the right to live. Um, so, you know, how then does that kind of uh, connect your larger argument about paraliberalism? Yeah, you know, I see these as, as you know, certainly the examples I trace, at least, as, a, as, um, as stories that help, that could, could that attempt to um, help audiences think through um, the problems and paradoxes and pitfalls of being a sovereign nation state in um, an otherwise, you know, you know, highly interconnected global economy, you know, that both keeps people out, but um, needs them to be kept out precisely for its functioning, right? So if, if that's how paraliberalism works, that it, it incorporates some people precisely by keeping them out, then these 
outside spaces could be very well depicted in something like an epic, you know, could be depicted in these, you know, quote unquote, isolated villages where um, where unconnected um, from all of those problems. As you said, you know, different kinds of political problems can be imagined and worked through. Uh, but at the end of the day, if like in Igodo, the the sort of final message of the film is, um, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to fully reform this uh, political system that we have, but we can we can find ways to endure. Then that once again um, sort of fits this agenda uh, that I've been talking about. This sort of governmentality of not only the state in Nigeria, but sort of you know liberalism writ large, which says yes, the conditions to actually participate in the liberal world order aren't available to you. Um, but in the meantime, you can find ways to, you know, cope, essentially. Great. And so then sort of finally we end with uh, filmic depictions of crime, corruption, and the sort of the notorious 419. So likely I've, I've found, you know, if Americans know anything about Nigeria, it's like either Boko Haram mm-hmm. uh, or it's 419 schemes, which, you know, the kind of notorious Nigerian prince emailing you about a great right. money-making opportunity. Um, right. But as you discussed, you know, the version of 419 that most Americans are aware of is really kind of only the tip of the iceberg, um, so to speak. So maybe to mm-hmm. start, can you describe to listeners kind of what 419 is and kind of what is the space that it occupies in Nigerian popular life? Sure. Um, you know, that that uh, that number 419 comes from the penal code, which is actually, you know, was derived from the colonial, the British penal code. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, the same kinds of crimes that Section 419 deals with, which we would call advanced fee fraud. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, tricking people out of their money by suggesting, oh, that if they put in advance fee, right? But if they invest a little bit, there's this big return on their investment that might be possible. Um, you know, has been depicted elsewhere in, in the globe. I mean, I don't mention this in the book, but there's a there's a famous Indian film called Shri 420, um, which is about, you know, a kind of famous trickster character from the Indian cinematic tradition engaging in similar kinds of fraud activities. Um, and it's, um, you know, uh, just a slightly revised penal code in India, so that it's Section 420 there that deals with the same kinds of things that Section 419 deals with in Nigeria. Um, so there's a colonial kind of origin for this. But the this kind of advanced fee fraud, it's, um, you know, again, it's kind of a way of coping with a really unproductive economy, right? You have you have people, you know, who graduate first class from Nigerian universities, and there are no jobs available to them. So, but but of course, you know, those people are the most innovative people you'll find anywhere in the world and they find ways to make money. So yes, like classic email scam is one of them. But, you know, one of the unfortunate things is that 419 isn't simply directed at the world uh, outside of Nigeria, but it's, you know, it's something that plagues, um, you know, ordinary Nigerians themselves too. So that there are all kinds of advanced fee fraud schemes um, undertaken, you know, inside of Nigeria and, you know, people, and some of this is depicted in, you know, these Nollywood movies, um, you know, but if you're driving around um, southern Nigeria today, and perhaps it's true in the north, you can tell me more, um, you know, 
you'll see houses that say this house is not for sale. Be <laughs> beware of 419 um, precisely because maybe somebody has has tried to you know sell somebody's house out from underneath them in the past as, as part of one of these schemes. Um, so at the same time, there's this big problem for everyone. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate way that people are trying to deal with an, a dysfunctional economy. Um, there is this, again, fantasy space in which um, it's also a kind of, you know, um, retaliation against the global economy, right? So those things that are directed outside, like the classic email scams, and then things that are depicted in Nigerian movies where, you know, someone poses as an oil magnate and gets, you know, um, an investor from, you know, the United States or from Switzerland or whatever it might be to invest in a corrupt project in Nigeria. And of course, it was all made up from the beginning and it's simply trying to defraud people of millions of dollars. Um, you know, this is depicted in films as like I said, retaliation, you know, it's depicted in films as something kind of glamorous and fun thing, you know, the same way that in any film industry, anywhere, there are certain crime films where we're on the side of the criminals, you know, we like hacker films, I think in the U S yeah, right? exactly. It's a, you know, it's a very similar kind of a thing and it's not exclusive to Nollywood. Um, there's all kinds of, um, you know, popular, uh, Afro beats songs, you know, hip hop songs in Nigeria that deal with this idea, you know, another local, term for things. So 419 is something everyone in Nigeria would know. But, um, you know, because of that association with internet scams, um, you know, a lot of the like young men, especially that, that people associate with this, um, they'll call them Yahoo Yahoo boys because mm -hmm. they were using Yahoo email accounts back in the old days. Um, but there, you know, there's all kinds of like um, Yahoo boy pop songs and things like that, you know, so it's a widespread popular culture phenomenon to kind of like both fear 419, but also celebrate it, just like you said, like a hacker film or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, as we've sort of tragically, you know, seen recently with the kind of the protests against SARS, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, part of, of, of the Nigerian kind of police, um, you know, a lot of the youth that got targeted in the backlash of those protests by police were youth that were deemed to be perhaps Yahoo boys because they had, right. you know, an iPhone or yeah, some form of kind of, you know, modern technology that, you know, makes it skeptical that they got that by illicit uh, right. or by rather illicit means. Right. means. Yeah. So it can have real, you know, negative impact this idea on people right. that might get uh, unfairly accused yeah, of being right. involved. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I was just going to then ask. Um, so you know, the chapter kind of starts by looking at a state TV show, um, which you argue, in a sense, kind of fits with the 1980s war on indiscipline by the Nigerian mm -hmm. military government uh, at the time, and that it sort of equates corrupt practices of the poor as being basically equal on a kind of equal moral plane of corrupt practices mm -hmm. uh, of the wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a later Nollywood film you examine in, in kind of detail um, in the words of sort of one of the characters is that, you know, as you've already sort of mentioned, that kind of this idea that, you know, 419 crimes of poor Nigerians against global capital might mm -hmm. be a kind of moral form 
um, of sort of wealth distribution. So kind of, I guess, how do we get from one to the other a bit? Right. Um, so just as you said, um, and so we could maybe consider this a kind of a spectrum because I wouldn't want to necessarily equate the two, but just mm-hmm. as you said, you know, um, whereas the police, you know, can use as justification for their own brutality, the idea that people are making money by illicit means, you know, by specifically by fraud, um, you know, is is a central concern of the Nigerian state, you know, partly because it is a real issue that has to be dealt with on the ground, but partly because of a sense of like their image abroad and so on. Um, you know, so um, there, like I said, there's this spectrum of, of the state being very concerned about Nigerian citizens, you know, um, participating formally <laughs> in the economy um, even though actually most of the economic activity in, in Nigeria is informal, you know, um, but the way that this interest, the state interest, you know, sort of uh, manifested itself in the 1980s, you know, because the, the kinds of things that would become ca- called, you know, 419 you know, were already at, um, in play at that time you know, was through the, like you said, this policy program called the War Against Indiscipline, you know, and it it was like on many different fronts and with many different kinds of propaganda, but also, you know, um, many different kinds of policing and so on that, that the state wanted to sort of remind its citizens that there's a proper way to do things, you know, um, right, and curtail all this kind of like, uh, what they, with the, with the, the implementers of these programs thought of as, you know, people trying to cut corners and, and, you know, create wealth for themselves through, through, um, you know, um, through means that weren't legitimate. So, um, you know, so Bassi and company is this program. It's, it's actually written and produced by Ken Sarawiwa, which is a real irony because he's Mm -hmm. a major critic of the Nigerian state, you know, but there there are also ways in which, you know, he also wanted the state to be a good version of itself and mm-hmm. it was willing to participate wherever necessary. Um, you know, he was eventually um, executed by Sani Abacha, you know, by the, the military dictator of Nigeria in the late 90s. Um, but in this television program, he depicts an ordinary man who engages in all kinds of fraudulent activities, who's, you know, every single episode, Bassi is trying to scheme and con somewhere along the way to make money. He wears this shirt everywhere he goes that says, uh, to be a millionaire, think like a millionaire. And that's his motto. And, you know, he, he's kind of basically positions himself as a millionaire. He's, he's telling everybody, I actually have lots of money. Um, even though he lives this poor and indigent life, because he's kind of like, he's kind of constantly got projects going. He's kind of constantly got money on the move in different places. Um, but Bassi is always sort of reprimanded. And, you know, he always sort of gets his come up in, in the end. Uh, but Bassi's not the only one in the program who's engaged in fraudulent activities. The landlady that he rents his apartment from, who is a wealthy woman, is also engaged in all kinds of like corrupt contracts and, you know, different projects of her own to try and make money. Um, and she, too, you know, gets her come up and, you know, most of the time. So there's a sense in which the show is is saying, you know, um, and again, it's being broadcast during the war against indiscipline and there are various policymakers who tout it as one of the arms of the war against indiscipline, you know, part of the propaganda campaign of, of speaking to the local public and saying, you know, um, these kinds of things might be funny, you know, and interesting and so on. But at the end of the day, you know, 
bad things will happen to you if this is the kind of corruption that you engage in. You know, meanwhile, the state itself is, you know, massively corrupt and siphoning oil money off into, you know, banks in Zurich and so on. Um, so, of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy built into it. Um, what was the last part of your question? Well, you know, and then sort of you note that there's a maybe the most critical of all the kind of examples that you've been kind of taking us through in the book, you know, the most sort of critical example that seems to be, you know, perhaps sort of questioning or kind of making fun Mm. of Mm -hmm. Perry liberalism a bit or sort of exposing Mm. it a bit Mm -hmm. are these sort of later uh, Nollywood films that kind of, right. They don't quite uh, invite audiences to necessarily identify with the the 419 criminals but they mm-hmm. they do allow them to kind of yeah give voice to the kind of hypocrisy of what's going right. on right yeah i mean you know comedy satire is always especially well placed to perform those kinds of functions you know in in any setting um and yeah exactly what is going on is um you know again at least in the examples that i'm looking at is that it may be true at the end of the stories that, you know, the 419er gets what's coming to him, you know, so the audience isn't exactly asked to celebrate what they've done, but they get to have fun, you know, as these things unfold over, um, over the course of the movie, right? And you really get a chance to kind of, um, you know, in that chapter, uh, you know, kind of sort of leaning especially heavy on, you know, film studies and film theory and literary studies, you know, I'm looking at the way that mirrors are used in these different mm-hmm. kinds of films. But the, the point is, is that you, as you can imagine, um, a mirror is a great device for sort of bringing people's attention to the fact that there's always another side to things, right? That things are, are doubled, um, that things, you know, aren't exactly what they seem when you look at them from this angle and perhaps a little bit different from this angle, right? And, and that essentially um, these, you know, movies about fraud and television shows about fraud you know, at the very least, they ask audiences to kind of, you know, think twice about what it means to cope with uh, this kind of economic situation that people find themselves in and maybe have, you know, at least some fun exploring the possibility that they could somehow circumvent it also instead of enduring like the women, you know, and, and, you know, embracing their suffering. And instead of, you know, being led down satanic paths, like, you know, the bread losers or, you know, some of these other things, instead, they're, they're invited to kind of have some fun and to laugh at, you know, especially in, a, in one particular film, laugh at the white dupes who get mm-hmm. cheated out of their money, you know, and, and like watch the capitalists, you know, get destroyed. There's something kind of fun about that. Right. And as you know, this sort of final character that you talk about, and uh, right, one of the films, Dennis, Right. I mean, he makes the point that, you know, in any case, it is the greedy people. It is the greedy ones that fall victim of 419. If you're not greedy and do not have intention of defrauding anybody in this nation, they will not fall victim of 419. So it's it almost makes it sound like, you know, by doing 419, he's protecting the the Nigerian nation. Right. Right. And, you know, in the speech that you kind of give a long quote to. Right. He also kind of, you know, suggests like, you know, isn't, you know, like the white people kind of invented 419 and he Mm -hmm. connects it all the way back to slavery, which is quite um, evocative. Um, All right. So, you know, in your conclusion, uh, you kind of turn to 
what you know scholars refer to as new Nollywood. So again, for the kind of unfamiliar listener, what is new Nollywood? What makes it new? I mean, you've already kind of referred to it a bit already, but maybe to kind of remind us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the energy around Nollywood filmmaking um, has become so great. And certainly by, um, you know, by about 2009, 2010 had become so great um, that different kinds of individuals and institutions took an interest in, you know, what could be done with all of this energy if there was, you know, basically more capital investment, you know, so for, for a good 20 years, you know, um, you know, Nigerian movies were all low budget movies, Nollywood movies were all very low budget movies. And that had you know, an effect on the image quality or the sound quality or the quality of the script sometimes, Um, you know, films were made quickly and cheaply, but that was the whole business model. And that's what made it possible in the first place. There there would be no Nollywood without, you know, that cheap business model. Um, But nevertheless, uh, their stars had cropped up, you know, people that everyone knows. Um, They're so famous that they could get, you know, sponsorship deals, brand ambassador deals with global, you know, telecom corporations and so on. Um, And this sense that, you know, there's enough of an audience here, you know, and there's enough, you know, interest in certain stars and so on, that if we could just produce films with more money, you know, um, something, you know, something big could happen. So, I mean, there are different filmmakers found different ways to do this, and there isn't necessarily one particular model, but some in some cases, venture capitalism came in um, through the establishment of a kind of what people called at the time Netflix of Nigeria, a, a website called Iroko TV, you know, that was was funded precisely to like start streaming Nigerian movies and to, to bring more money into the production of Nigerian movies. Um, in some cases, filmmakers had connections with banks, you know, and just went and, um, you know, convinced them to invest in a film. Um, so there's been different kinds of piecemeal things that have been going on since about 2009, um, you know, maybe the one of the latest things is that a satellite television channel that um, is part of a bouquet that comes out of South Africa was established called Ebony Life TV. And Ebony Life TV is, you know, um, created by Nigerian, you know, producers and creators, um, but has that South African capital behind it um, and and can um, create television shows and movies with a lot higher investment. And then they're able to sell the rights to those things to places like Netflix. So there's a lot of Ebony Life TV content that's now available on Netflix and some things that I would really, really highly recommend, you know, some really amazing stuff being made. So the old business model is still working. Um, and people are still making movies that way. But then there are this, these other filmmakers who are using different, you know, sources of investment to make higher budget movies. Um, you know, just, you can just you look at them and you immediately understand that the quality is different, you know, and that, you know, then there are all kinds of debates that we have in our scholarly world about what happens when, you know, international finance capital comes into an otherwise you know, uh, film industry that was otherwise working in the informal economy? Does it compromise anything, especially as regards politics and so on? Um, there's a lot that one could say, but but the fact of the matter is, is that um, this new Nollywood is, is providing higher quality content to much wider audiences. Um, and it's really successful at home. Another thing that's happened is because these 
higher budget movies are available and they look better on the big screen. There are more cinemas now in Nigeria where you can, you know, go to a, a nice air conditioned shopping mall and go into a nice cinema and watch these new Nigerian movies and so on, um, if you can afford to. Um, and so that's also an issue, like who is the audience here? But um, but this new Nollywood is, um, you know, is a force to be reckoned with. Um, and it's it doesn't mean that Nollywood has changed precisely. It just means that there's another kind of Nollywood operating with the original Nollywood and they're they're both doing their thing at the same time. Yeah, and this change of the the number of cinemas like is something that I have seen mm-hmm. just since you know the first time I went to Nigeria is in two thousand and eleven and I've seen mm-hmm. like the increase since then. So right. it is something that's like yeah, quite present in the recent time. Mm-hmm. Um uh so you know, you you're kind of you keep your argument and the conclusion is really quite hopeful um, yeah. and sort of it's, you know, mainly that perhaps, as you put it, sort of new Nollywood invites us to kind of consider the possibility that if periliberalism were to end, if indirect subjects were to become direct subjects, then liberalism, which feeds upon its outside, might grow weak. If that happens, perhaps real liberation can begin. Um, so you can maybe, can you walk listeners through kind of how you come to this sort of optimistic conclusion? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to be careful because um, mm-hmm. I feel like I did want to end on an optimistic note, but I think, I, I hope that there, you can, you can sense some ambivalence, you know, in okay. the, in the phrasing there um, in the sense that, so part of the, in order to get to that, you know, ending, I explained that. The, the way I see it is, is if you want to, people want to call New Nollywood like an example of globalization, right? Like mm-hmm. these, are, these are films where global funds are pouring in and the message is pouring out to the globe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but in some sense, it's the version of globalization that we might associate with like Thomas Friedman or something. It's this kind of like flat globalization where like everybody is imbued <laughs> with the power to make their own lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of new Nollywood films are about middle class and upper class people, you know, not exclusively, but there's a lot of that going on in new Nollywood. And there's this sense that like, you know, Nigerians are part of the global economy and they jet here and they go there and they have big parties and everything's exciting. And, um, you know, and that this this era of being like left out is somehow over. And I say that's actually a very local fantasy in some sense. You know, that's a that's actually that makes the new Nollywood exact, actually very local, whereas the old Nollywood that was really global because what it said was globalization creates suffering. You know, and, <laughs> and that sort of really explains how globalization actually works. Um, whereas this new version, this kind of glossy version of globalization, kind of hides you know some of the facts of it. But at the same time, this sense that Nigeria isn't on the outside anymore, you know, that it is, you know, part of the liberal world order, it might be a fantasy, um, you know, but but at least it's not saying to its audience, hold on, wait, you must endure until our chance arrives. It says, oh, you know, our chance is here, let's go get it. Um, and again, that might be a bit of a lie. It might be a fantasy. But as I've been saying all along, these are all fantasies. They're also trying to you know, speak to their audience about fantasies, um, you know, maybe there's a sense in which um, the Nigerian audience wants to begin thinking about its relationship to the global world order as not necessarily being left out, 
um, but being, you know, finally claiming this central role. You know, if the, the global economy couldn't have been built without Africa, then Africa gets to be right there in the middle of it all. And um, even though I think of myself as a materialist, I am also a cultural studies scholar. And, and one of the things that we say all the time is that um, you, you can't fix problems simply by representations. You know, you also actually fix the structural material issues that people face. But at the same time, representations are really important. And it's not because simply because they represent a particular world, but because they're part of the language that we understand reality through, right? The representations make our reality for us in some sense. And if these new representations can make a kind of new reality for Nigerian audiences, then, then perhaps there's a sense in which this peri-liberal sensibility could fall away. You know, and perhaps there's this sense that instead of being left out of liberalism, and in fact, if liberalism is a thing that only works because there's an inside and an outside, and so this idea of outsideness just sort of floats away, perhaps, you know, then the, a, a whole new relationship with the world and the global economy can start to form, you know, in the, the minds of audiences and so on. I don't know, you know, I leave it there, you know, I don't know what that looks like. It's not a revolution exactly. And in sure. fact, maybe it's just, like I said, now it's just direct subjection to global capital mm -hmm. instead of indirect subjection to global capital. So it's not necessarily some utopian vision, but it's a sense that like New Nollywood, at least, uh, at least one dimension of it is that it's showing people that they can think about their world differently. And, and if they want to think about the world differently, maybe they can make it differently. Yeah. And I guess there were just like two kind of strands of, of thought that I just kind of had while, you know, finishing up the book. So one was that I was, you know, I had actually myself recently watched the wedding party. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I was struck by the fact that a lot of the, uh, you know, the stars, the actors, um, while, you know, of Nigerian heritage are themselves based in the global north and mm -hmm. in sort of in the UK. So I kind of wonder, I don't know if that's how common that is in other kind of new Nollywood films, but I wonder if, if that somewhat kind of complicates your point. I don't, yeah. Yeah. Know, right. The question is there. And then the other thing is, you know, something that sort of struck me from, you know, just looking at, uh, you know, Nigerians on Twitter lately is how, just how popular squid games uh, mm, were right. with Nigerian yeah. audiences, which of course, you know, has a very kind of anti-global capital right. message. And so I'm also kind of wondering how um, perhaps the, the, the increased ability of people living sort of throughout the global South to, you know, not just kind of view, uh, you know, messages that sort of speak to global capital produced within their country, but also elsewhere in the global South is also perhaps, I don't know, changing the conversation. So those are kind of two tangents. Right. Feel free to respond to either. Yeah, you know, um, one thing I've seen is that, you know, the way that the, the characters in Squid Game wear those green and white um, jumpsuits, mm -hmm. you know, right. the Nigerians are saying, oh, this is us, actually. This right. is the green, green, white, green of the Nigerian flag. Right. Also, the, uh, the triangle, the square and the circle yeah. images are like on Nigerian money. And so that's also yeah, supposed yeah. to be a hidden message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess one thing that occurs to me is. Um, is. I, again, a double-edged sword of, of sort of greater solidarity with mm -hmm. all 
of the people who are suffering under, you know, the current configuration of the global economy. Um, uh, but, you know, instead of this, this sort of very carefully, even if perhaps slightly unintentionally um, created system of enclosing parts of the global south and keeping it out of the liberal system that I described, mm -hmm. you know, at the beginning through indirect rule, that, um, that instead of that, um, people are starting to feel more and more like we're all being better integrated into the system. Um, and now we understand precisely, but not now we understand, they always under, understood, but you know, we're better integrated into the system and now we all suffer it together, but at least mm -hmm. we're suffering it together. And that togetherness could be the roots again of, you know, something profound, um, potentially, um, you know, with a film like The Wedding Party, so so on one hand, you have Squid Game, you have the sense that like maybe global capitalism, what it's doing to people in South Korea is, is starting to do to Nigeria. And that's bad, but it also means that now we're like them. And maybe, you know, maybe these global solidarities could could um, come out of it in some sense. With a film like The Wedding Party, it, it's like you said, in a sense, I think, or suggested you know, almost the opposite picture, which is you have these two like wealthy families, you know, and their their children are getting married. Um, and it invites this critique of these people whose wealth comes from, you know, one family comes from oil, you know, it's it's very much a part of this, you know, predatory global system. Um, but the, the film is structured in such a way that there's a bit of a critique embedded in there. And there's a particular character, you know, who's going to crash the wedding um, precisely because he's one of these first class university graduates who can't find a work and he's going to come and steal all the wedding gifts and so on. Um, what happens at the, near the end of the film, unfortunately, is that these two families that don't see eye to eye, the one thing that brings them together and they, they suddenly the entire film changes and they suddenly become much more bonded is in their struggle against that thief. Right. So there's mm -hmm. a way in which like this elite class consciousness coalesces precisely around their fear of the poorest amongst us. Right. Um, you know, so there, there is at the same time, this potential for thinking about global solidarities. There is this also this unfortunate sense that if Nigerian elites can, can gather around and, and coalesce their own sense of their class consciousness, you know, elites anywhere in the world can do the same, you know, the, the, the elites are going to get together against the rest of us, it's up to the rest of us to get together against the elites, you know? So it's, it's certainly not like there's a clear program or a clear message about where things are headed, but there is at least this acknowledgement and sense of understanding of like, this is how the, the global system works and that we have to find our alliances. Right, and in the wedding party, it's sort of, you know, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of like old money and new money, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> coming right. together <laughs> in the right. interest of money. Right, in the interest of money. Um, uh, well, uh, Professor Brown, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time, but I have sort of one last uh, question, which is I was hoping that you might kind of tell us a little bit about what you're working on next. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, as I you know, did the research for this book, I really became keyed into the role that large institutions play in the constitution of culture, even, you know, popular culture, culture that, you know, circulates in the informal economy and so on, right? So, um, 
where my book tries to make at least one small intervention is to think more closely about like how does state television leave its kind of imprint on Nollywood, even though Nollywood is very much a different mm-hmm. beast from state television. Um, so, um, you know, I have, you know, a couple of research projects that I'm working on now, but one of them is, um, is continuing to look at the role that institutions play in the constitution of culture. And like I said, I was trained in literary studies. Um, and one of the things I've been looking at lately is the role that uh, examination boards play in the constitution of culture. So um, in in Nigeria, you know, to to progress from, you know, one is, uh, level of schooling to the next, you know, you have to take these big exams and, and score certain scores on these big exams. And, and one of them is a regional exam. Um, the West Africa Examinations Council, you know, administers this, this large exam. And every year they publish the syllabi for their exams. And when it comes to the literature syllabi, and this has been, by the way, the WIAC was founded in the colonial era, era it goes back to 1952. Um, so there's this long history of institutions like this sort of um, assigning books, you know, assigning literature, both in English, you know, in African languages, um, you know, the syllabi make distinctions between what counts as African literature and what counts as non-African literature and, and why sometimes there are some interesting overlaps between African American literature and African literature and sometimes not. Um, but, you know, these syllabi are assigned and then students, you know, and today they're published on the internet um and republished by all kinds of sites that actually make money off of advertising and so on you know because millions of students are forced to come to these places to think about what equals literature and you know to to read books and in some cases the books are not the the most famous novels that we know of when we think about african literature they're they're published by small presses in nigeria who are precisely designed who are built to make money off of the fact that these uh examination boards are assigning these texts and so on so um, I have been planning to go to Nigeria for the past two years and my yeah. institution <laughs> won't send me because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping to go this summer um, and I have some funding to um, go through the archives of the West Africa Examinations Council and mm-hmm. also, you know, um, more than one examination board in Nigeria. And and I'm working on, you know, tr- this would be maybe one chapter or part of um, a book on the way that... Um, um, institutions sort of train people on the ground to think about culture in certain ways. So. Well, it sounds really interesting, and um, I really enjoyed our conversation. So, thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great.